Well, we'll be in 1 Timothy 1 this morning, but before we get there, just a couple of uh, shepherding things. First, very practically this morning, um, I know we don't have any children's ministry or any nursery yet, but we do have uh, the 160 room straight back there is set up and we're live streaming right now. 20 feet away, which is weird, but uh, it's there. So if you have fussy kids and you want to still hear what we're talking about this morning, then feel free to take them back to 160, and there's plenty of space there for, for you and for your child. And then also a little bit longer note here. One of the things that has happened as a result of the COVID-19 crisis is that essentially many of the ministries of our church have kind of been gutted. I mean, we've just stopped doing so many things. And the opportunities to serve one another have, have been greatly decreased. And that's what we've always been about. We're very much about service. And so we've always taught that there are two ways we serve. One is in an organized fashion where we have the programs and we have the ministries that we want you to do and be a part of. But the other one is in an organic fashion. Organic service is just where you look around and see somebody. I think I'm going to serve that person. I think I'm going to invite them to lunch. I think I'm going to invite myself to lunch. Whatever you have to do. We can't do much of the organized part, but all of you can do the organic part. It's very simple. Don't leave here until you find somebody to serve or be served by, and everybody will be uh, better for it. So we're going to adopt a little bit more of the less organized and more organic model right now. Just find somebody to serve. Find somebody to hang out with. Find somebody to to find out how you can pray for them, how you can minister to them. So that's what we'll have to do for the time being. We have been, though, making our way through 1 Timothy 1, looking at the theme of the beautiful bride of Christ. And we've been looking at these various elements, these duties that we have to prepare ourselves for the marriage supper of the Lamb, these things that we do to mature ourselves as the church as we're actively seeking Christ-likeness, as we're seeking holiness and obedience as the church, the element of that preparation that we'd like to examine today we'll call gospel thankfulness. Gospel thankfulness. And we find this in 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 12. Follow along with me. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom... I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. This passage is a gift to us. This is a gift from the Apostle Paul. He is the consummate example of the minister of the gospel. He is the great theologian of the gospel. He is the great prayer warrior whose prayers lace his letters and are interwoven into his teaching and his exhortation. In his 13 books, 
The Apostle Paul prays prayers of thanksgiving no less than 37 times. Paul was nothing if not thankful. And this is a gift to us because these half dozen verses or so are a a very intimate, personal look into the heart of the Apostle Paul. He lays his soul bare, and essentially what we have here is the salvation testimony of Paul. He provides a tremendous example of the focus of his gratitude. The focus of his gratitude is the forgiveness of sin that was given to him as a gift from God. And this is a prayer of Paul. He begins, I thank him who has given me strength. And as we're going through kind of word by word here, I should make a note that for those who wonder if we are supposed to pray only to God the Father in the name of the Son and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I want you to notice the object of Paul's prayer. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Of course, he's going to thank the Lord Jesus for salvation. He's the one who died on the cross. The notion of not addressing any and all members of our triune God in prayer, that's not founded in Scripture. That's founded in tradition only. As a matter of fact, these six verses stand, as many have said, one of the greatest prayers of gospel gratitude, gospel thankfulness in all of the New Testament. And interwoven into these words, into this prayer, are the tremendous truths of our faith. Now, just to review a little bit, so far in 1 Timothy 1, Paul has been emphasizing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, he's been emphasizing the discouragement and, in fact, the taking down and the putting to a stop of the the digressions and the false teachings that were happening among even some of the leaders of the church. They were using speculation. They were misusing the authority of Scripture in various ways that we've looked at over the past weeks. But now he gives the antidote. What's the antidote to speculations, to false teaching? The antidote is the gospel of Christ. And Paul uses himself now as an example of the power of the gospel. And this is very important. This is key. Because the church of Jesus Christ, we've observed, often suffers from an anemic understanding of the gospel. And when you have an anemic understanding of the gospel, what does that create? That creates anemic Christians whose thankfulness is anemic. Their thankfulness falls short. And what happens then is our worship, our corporate gatherings, and even how we think about our faith becomes very me-centered. It becomes human-centered. It becomes man-centered. And now we lose the gravity about the gospel, and we've turned God just into this cosmic life coach who exists merely to help you through the problems of life. Well, the gospel is the antidote to that. And instead of that, we need a rich and vibrant understanding of the gospel so that our thankfulness goes as high as the gospel is deep. And we worship properly reflecting what God has done. It is the gospel that returns worship to the awe and the magnificence and the wonder and the marveling at God's grace that worship properly is to be. Now we should note here thankfulness is not just an attitude of the heart. It is an action. It is something you do. It's an action performed in prayer. And since the apostle Paul is praying here, I thought we would stay with that theme. I'd like to give you a simple four-part prayer of gospel thankfulness. Straight out of this text, a simple four-part prayer of gospel thankfulness. First, very simply, Thank God for usefulness. Thank God for usefulness. 
Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. We begin to see here immediately the doctrine of justification. What is justification? Justification is the imparting of the righteousness of God to one who is inherently unrighteous. And here we see the justification of Paul. He begins this section, I thank him who has given me strength. This is a a deeply loaded statement, but let me tell you what it doesn't mean, first of all. This is not God, uh, Paul thanking God rather for some sort of inner strength or personal courage. Thank you for giving me the strength to go to the dentist yesterday morning. It's not that sort of strength. The context is in the prior verse, verse 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The context of his strength is the strength to carry out the ministry. To carry out the gospel ministry of salvation. But what did he need first? He had to be given spiritual strength. He had to be renewed in his heart, renewed in his soul. He had to be regenerated and then justified. Paul says here, and here's where we really get to the justification part. He says that the Lord Jesus judged me faithful. What does he mean by this? Well, he actually explains it. He, he explains it by the following phrase, appointing me to his service. This is what's called an appositional phrase, not an oppositional phrase, but appositional phrase, where one phrase explains the one that came before it, that gives clarity to it. Now, this could sound a little self-serving, that Paul believes that Christ judged him to be faithful, worthy of serving Christ. I think our English translation doesn't help us a lot here. It lacks the depth we need to a certain degree. It's not that Jesus Christ looked around on the earth and said, Oh, look, there's a faithful guy. What a great minister of the gospel he would make. I think I'll save him. No. Paul says he judged me faithful. This is a word that means to make a decision to hold a certain view. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ made a decision. He chose to regard Paul as faithful, to regard Paul as worthy, to regard Paul as precious, to regard Paul as commendable, even though Paul was none of those things. What do we call that? That's the doctrine of justification. For God regards you in a way that you are not. What was Paul like before his salvation? Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Let's take that apart. First of all, he was a blasphemer. What does that mean? It's one who slanders. It's one who reviles. It it literally means to abuse. Paul blasphemed God by not formally acknowledging Christ. It also speaks of defaming and abusing the followers of Christ as well. That makes you guilty of blasphemy. We are the body of what? Christ. 2 Timothy 3 verse 2, the very same Greek word is translated abuser. And it speaks of an unbelieving rebel. He was an unbelieving rebel who blasphemed God, blasphemed the followers of God. Paul also says he was a persecutor. Let's camp on this for a moment. Paul carried with him the knowledge of his former hatred of Christians. If you recall, he was the representative of the Sanhedrin, the Jerusalem Council, and his job as the representative of the Jerusalem Council was to go after Christians all over the region. He was the chief persecutor of the church. And we see this first 
in the arrest of Stephen, this great and faithful man in the church of Jerusalem. Stephen was arrested for preaching Christ in Jerusalem. He was sentenced to be executed by stoning. People were called upon to stone Stephen to death. And a young man named Saul, later to be known as Paul, watched the garments, the coats, so to speak, the, the, the garments of those who were stoning Stephen. They had taken off their outer clothing for the strenuous act of committing murder. But it wasn't that Paul just happened to be standing there. It wasn't that just he was passively like some sort of lackey or servant just watching these coats. Why wasn't he throwing the stones? Because the commander never pulls the trigger. He commands those who do. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says chillingly, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. It doesn't mean he thought it was a good idea. It doesn't mean he thought in his mind, yeah, I think let's do this. It means he actively approved. It's a word that means, listen carefully, to give permission. Saul, Paul, was the representative of the Sanhedrin. He gave permission for the execution of Stephen. In fact, Paul says himself in his trial in Acts 22, verse 20, he says, when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. What does this mean? It means that in his self-righteous indignation, he could honestly say, hey, I never picked up a rock. I never threw a stone. But what did he do? He manipulated all those who did and he commanded them and he had the authority to do so. In fact, right after this murder, Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Not only that, Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says that Paul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. What does that mean? It means he was letting it be known that you could turn out like Stephen. Paul struck terror in the hearts of Christians in Jerusalem because of his horrible acts against the church. In fact, so much so that after his conversion to Christ, the church of Jerusalem wouldn't let him in, wouldn't let him join. Why? Acts 9 says they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. He was that bad. Paul was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He also says he was an insolent opponent, an insolent opponent. It's the Greek word hubristes. Hubristes, and it means violent, disastrous, insulting, outrageous. We get our word hubris from this. Hubris is, it means to have excessive pride, utter arrogance, complete conceit. It's to be emboldened with unashamed sinfulness. And so Paul was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was a man of hubris. He hated the church of Jesus Christ with every fiber of his being. And here's where we see the awe that he has of the grace of Christ. Verse 13. But I received mercy. He received mercy. What is mercy? Mercy has the idea of not receiving what you've dished out to everybody else. It has the idea of not receiving the just retribution of your sin and your arrogance. Now, just a little side note here. From a human vantage point, from our viewpoint, why did Paul receive mercy from God? Why did he receive mercy? You recall that while Stephen was dying, as the stones were smashing his face, his head, his torso, 
He fell to his knees and his last word, his final prayer on this earth, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Paul was the commander. Stephen prayed for Paul. And like his Savior Jesus who prayed the same prayer on the cross, Stephen asked God to have mercy to not hold this sin to their credit for those who were murdering him. Paul is the answer to Stephen's prayer from a human vantage point. But what about from the heavenly vantage point? Paul lists this reason from a heavenly vantage point. He had received mercy into verse 13 because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, what does this mean? The Apostle Paul was a master teacher of the law of Moses. He knew the law backwards and forwards, well-trained from the time he was a little boy. And he's asserting what the Old Testament calls the unintentional sin. The unintentional sin is spoken of in Numbers chapter 15. And in that text, God offers forgiveness to the one who sins unintentionally, who sins in ignorance. But God makes a distinction. He says in Numbers 15 verse 30, But the person who does anything with a high hand reviles the Lord. He has despised the word of the Lord. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. In other words, he shall not be offered forgiveness. He shall not be forgiven. So it's not that Paul deserved mercy at all. We wouldn't say that. Paul's simply saying he didn't know the truth of Christ, didn't know the truth of the gospel, and therefore his actions were performed in ignorance. A little side note, I think we can't go by this without pointing out that this implies that it's possible to do the opposite. It's possible to know the truth of Christ, to know the truth of the gospel, and to act in disobedience in full culpable responsibility. Knowledge of the gospel gives you blameworthiness. It gives you liability. It gives you accountability. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 26, says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that cannot consume the adversaries. This can't be speaking of merely God's discipline of a believer in Christ. There's never a time in the New Testament that a Christian is called an adversary. This is speaking, though, this is a chilling statement. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, the more you hear the gospel and willfully reject it, the more spiritual danger you are in. And there could be a day when that person would say, Lord, would you forgive me? And he would say no. But Paul received grace from the Lord. And the very first time he encountered the true gospel of Christ, the very first time he heard the gospel, he received Christ immediately as recorded in Acts 9 in his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. And look at him now, the one who is the blasphemer, the one who is the persecutor, the one who is the insolent opponent, is now a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, appointed to serve all the churches of Christ as an ambassador of the Lord, a role he still has. Why did we say that? We just read his words, didn't we? God had now made him useful to the kingdom No longer did Paul fall into the category of humanity that Romans 3.12 says together they have become worthless. Now he's become useful. He had worth in Christ. And this is exactly what God has done for you in your salvation from sin. He's made you useful. 
Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him, in them. You've been made useful in the kingdom of Christ. You're not any longer in the category of Romans 3.12, the worthless ones. Now you have worth and you have usefulness. Many of you love the book of Philemon, a little tiny book in the New Testament. And it chronicles Paul's request of his friend Philemon. Philemon was a member, probably a high-ranking member of the church at Colossae. And he asked Philemon to forgive a runaway slave that had run away from Philemon's household. And the slave's name was Onesimus. Onesimus had now become a Christian under the ministry of Paul. And he sent him back to Philemon. And he writes this letter to Philemon. And Paul makes a joke. He makes a play on words. He tells Philemon that Onesimus was formerly useless to Philemon, but now he is useful. Now, why is that a play on words? Because Onesimus means useful. You have become Onesimus. You have become useful. And so Paul thanks the Lord Jesus Christ for giving him mercy, for making him useful. Can you even fathom that? That in his grace, God has given you usefulness in his eternal kingdom. That you have a part to play. That's phenomenal. And that's a wonderful way to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. That you who were formerly useless, who were formerly a rebel, you've been transformed into a useful instrument of God, given mercy and not given what you actually deserve. The first part of our prayer of thanks, thank God for usefulness. Thank God for usefulness. Let me give you a second part. Thank God for conversion. Thank God for conversion. Paul continues in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now Paul shifts his focus from the gospel ministry to his conversion in Christ. He's still caught up in the wonder of his own salvation. And look who acted first. Who went first? The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. God's action is always first in salvation. And put it this way, if mercy is not receiving what you do deserve, then grace is receiving those blessings you do not deserve. He received mercy, then he received grace. And what's one of the blessings of grace? The very first one, in fact, the very first blessing of faith, of grace is faith. What is faith? It is the response to grace. Faith is the response to grace. Listen to Romans 3, beginning in verse 23. Very familiar to us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. That goes first. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, meaning a satisfaction, by His blood, now what comes? To be received by faith. In other words, the grace of God is that which causes faith. It enables faith. It empowers faith in you. Even more familiar to us is Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Grace is the cause of faith. And the gift of grace causes the gift of faith. And how much grace did God give? Paul says here, overflowing. Overflowing grace. Now, Overflowed is an interesting compound Greek word. It's only used one time in all the Bible, right here. 
And it's essentially a redundant word. It's repetitively redundant. To put it that way, it means to abound exceedingly over the edge. What does that mean? Well, in extra-biblical Greek literature, it was a word that meant to take a jar and to fill it to the top, and then when it's full, you keep filling it until it overflows and overflows and overflows. And in fact, it has the idea that the, the substance of the filling never stops. It just keeps overflowing. It's just flooding everywhere. And because of grace, which has caused faith, now Paul says the love that is in Christ Jesus, that's given as well. And guess what kind of metaphor the Apostle Paul, guess what kind of picture the Apostle Paul is going to use of the love of Christ that comes now. Romans 5, verse 5, same overflowing picture. Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts. It's to overflowing through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, if you've been at Grace Bible Church for any length of time, you've heard this, you know this. You know that grace precedes faith. You know that faith is a gift. It's not something we chose to to do. It's something God gave you. So you understand that. But here's my question. Has the grace of God been relegated to a theological compartment, to a doctrinal box in your mind where you've locked it up and said, I have that safely put away. I know that. I'm right. Everyone else is wrong. End of story. Or, or has your continued reflection on the grace of God, which gave you faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, is that engendering day by day more and more thankfulness, more offered prayers of gratitude for grace, which has given faith and love. Listen, I've heard mature believers pray prayers like this. Lord, thank you for my food. Thank you for my family. Thank you for providing for me. And oh, by the way, thank you for salvation. No, it should be the other way around. Our salvation is the climactic point of our thankfulness. It's the ultimate thing. It should be more like this. Lord, I thank you for my food. I thank you for my family. Thank you for providing for me. But I really thank you for the cross. And I really thank you for your grace. Listen, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.15, grace extends to more and more people that it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Which, by the way, tells you the ultimate purpose of your salvation was not to get you to heaven. That's just the result. The ultimate purpose of your salvation is to give glory to God. That as more and more people are saved by grace, the total amount of thanksgiving increases. Increases. And so our simple prayer of thanks, thank God for usefulness. Thank God for conversion. Third part of our prayer, thank God for patience. Thank God for patience. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is a formula, sometimes called the trustworthy saying formula. Paul uses it five times in the pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy and Titus. And so this is something he's done a few times here. This is Paul's way of saying, listen up. This is his way of saying, this is big. This is the Holy Spirit's way of saying, if you weren't paying attention, pay attention now. 
We've talked about this before, but you know when you have a two-year-old and you're trying to make a point to the two-year-old, what do they do? Eh, you know, they're everywhere, right? So what do you do? Well, you get one hand on one ear and one hand on the other ear, and you turn their little head so they look, right you, in the, look you right in the eye. This saying is trustworthy. It's God saying, listen to this part. Pay attention. And what are we to pay close attention to? That Christ came into the world to save sinners. What do we call that? That is the gospel in one phrase. That Christ came into the world to save sinners. And there's two important highlights here to this. First of all, Paul highlights the incarnation of Christ. The coming of Christ in bodily form. The pre-existence of the Lord Jesus Christ is heavily implied here. Jesus just didn't come by means of human birth. We all did that. But he came from somewhere. John 6, 38 Jesus said, for I have come down from where? Heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Paul highlights, highlights the incarnation of Christ, the bodily coming of Christ. But he highlights also the redemption given by Christ. He says to save sinners. Jesus didn't come to just be a good example, although he did that. He didn't come to just be a good teacher, although he did that. He didn't come just to be a, an example of perfect morality, although he did that. He came ultimately to save sinners. And this is important here that both the present and the future aspects of our salvation are brought out here. You're saved now and that will result in a future outcome. At the end of verse 16, we believe on Christ for eternal life. And so Paul asserts that Christ Jesus came down from heaven to save sinners And look at what Paul calls himself. Of whom I am the foremost. It's a simple Greek word here, protos. It's translated here the foremost. It's usually translated the first. It means the leading, the principal. Some of your translations say the chief. The chief of sinners. Now, this isn't some sort of mock humility. This isn't exaggeration on Paul's part. Listen carefully. Paul believes himself to truly be the most likely candidate for the most unsavable person in history. And so he marvels at his salvation. He carried in his heart, he carried in his mind, imprinted and burned into his brain were the images of, that he led the way to the murder of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, that he had Christians arrested, dragged from their homes, thrown into prison, that he breathed threats and murder against the people of God. By the way, we should note that Jesus takes it very, very personally when his people are harmed. Acts chapter 9, when Paul was blasted by a light from heaven and having fallen on the ground before the light, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul asked, who are you, Lord? The voice from heaven said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul carried this with him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he said, for I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He still carried it with him. He didn't carry the judicial guilt before God. He was forgiven but he did carry the awful memory of what he had done. And notice, by the way, here in verse 15, Paul doesn't say, I used to be the foremost of sinners. He says, I am the foremost. 
In other words, Paul identifies himself as always having the status of a sinner who has been redeemed. Always has that status. And so because Paul had such venomous hatred for the church prior to his salvation, having murdered Christians, having imprisoned them, having dragged them from their homes, he identified himself as the least savable person in all of humanity. But that's where verse 16 is Paul's glory, his delight. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He says that he is an example of Jesus Christ displaying perfect patience. This is a word that means all that is possible, all that's needed, it's unlimited, it's to the full extent. And some of you have told me this. Some of you have said that before you got saved, you were uncertain if God had enough grace for you, that you had sinned too much. This is saying there is no such thing as too much. All the patience that's needed. And Christ has now given in Paul a prototype, an example of all who would believe on the Lord. By the way, just a little note here. Notice that Paul indicates that there is a heavenly list known by Jesus Christ called those who were to believe. The doctrine of election says that God will cause many to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God's action is again always first. Ephesians 1, 4 says famously that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. If the doctrine of election isn't true, then there's the theoretical possibility that no one would believe. And in fact, that isn't a theoretical possibility. That is what would happen. Because Romans three eleven says no one seeks for God. But Paul here is, is just this huge encouragement for all of us. Christ Jesus has given us the example of Paul to say, if I will save him, I can save you. If I can save him, I will save you. Put it this way, no sin is too far beyond the grasp of God's grace. No sin is too heinous that the blood of Christ cannot cover it. No sin is too unholy that God cannot make you holy. Romans 5.20 says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, you remember how it ends? Grace abounded all the more. God's grace would meet and surpass whatever depths of sin Paul threw at it. Let me put it to you this way. Sin is you digging your way down, down, down to hell as fast as you can. Grace is God digging faster than you in a divine, eternal excavator going alongside you as you're going away from him and he's coming up underneath you and passing you up and scooping you up out of the dirt before you can dig your way to hell. How patient Christ was with you. Every day that you were digging your way closer to hell, Christ was digging alongside, going faster and harder than you were. That His grace was outpacing your sin. Every day that you worshipped at the altar of your own pleasure and your own selfish agenda, unbeknownst to you, Christ was burrowing underneath you to lift you up, to bring you to the cross to receive forgiveness of sin and then to clean you of all the dirt and the filth that was on you. And by God's grace, then you were enabled to have faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And the end of verse 16, for eternal life. 
I want to just make a note about this. Eternal life doesn't just speak of length of time. The Greek word here has to do with a time period, an age, life in the coming age. Eternal life means that you will be alive in the reign of Christ on earth. You will have a time of life after this life. You will be living after you die. You will be living with Christ in the ages to come. And that thought very naturally leads to Paul's next thought in the final part of our little prayer of thankfulness. Thank God for usefulness. Thank God for conversion. Thank God for patience. And thank God with exaltation. Thank God with exaltation. Now Paul's awe and delight and wonder at his own salvation leads him to a doxology. A doxology it literally means the study of glory. But the doxology in Scripture is an exclamation of the exaltation of the glory of God. And here we have his doxology. He's just overflowing with gratitude. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now we have a little theological question here. Who is Paul talking about? Is Paul referencing God the Father or God the Son? Doxologies in the New Testament tend to be addressed to God the Father rather than the Son. And Paul calls him the invisible God. But on the other hand, the only divine character clearly seen here in verses 12 through 16 has been Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. This is a very Christocentric text. And Christ has a very clear connection to the invisible nature of God, which I'll explain in a moment. I think it's very likely this is specifically a doxology to the Savior, the Lord Jesus. But it is a good object lesson for us that the theology of Paul joins God the Father and God the Son in such close union, such close association, such close unity, that at times it's difficult to distinguish who Paul is speaking of. In other words, Jesus Christ is indistinguishable from God the Father in so many ways that it's very clear that Jesus is God. He is God. But because of the clear emphasis on Christ in this passage, we're going to assume that Paul is speaking of Christ. But all that he exclaims of Christ is true of God the Father as well. But we'll focus on Christ. Paul ascribes to Christ, the King, four qualities. Four qualities. First, he is the King of the ages. He's the King of the ages. Now, this picks up the theme of eternal life at the end of verse 16. Ages, same root word as eternal. In fact, we could easily say that he showed his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for the ages and to the king of the ages or to the king eternal, as some translations say. Christ is the king over every age. He will transcend your death. He will transcend this age of the earth. He will transcend the coming age of his reign on earth. Revelation 20, and he'll extend on into the final age. The age of new heaven and new earth. And unlike the kings of earth, which Isaiah 14 says will go down to the grave and their reign is ended forever, the king of the ages is transcendent and his reign will be forever through every passing eon, every age. He is the king of the ages. Paul gives the king a second quality. Christ Jesus is immortal. 
He is immortal literally means imperishable, incorruptible. Nothing can make him decay. Nothing of God ever changes, ever ages, never becomes worse, never becomes better. God is perfect. He is the way he is. Now, the idea of immortality, particularly speaking of God, contrasts with the mortality of man. We are perishable. We are corruptible. We do age. We do change. Here's another clue that Paul is speaking more specifically of Christ. 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 15, says that Jesus Christ, quote, is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. Now, why does it say that Christ alone has immortality? As Christians, you have received immortality. You've received it. 2 Timothy 1.10 says that the grace of God has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who abolished death, listen to this, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. But here's the difference. Jesus Christ never received immortality. He is immortal. We had to receive it. He is by nature incorruptible. He is by nature imperishable. He is by nature unchanging. The third quality The king of the ages, immortal, is invisible. He's invisible. Now, the same difficulty in discerning whether Paul is speaking of God the Father or God the Son, we get that same difficulty in the 1 Timothy 6 I just referenced a moment ago. Let me read the rest of it. 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 14. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, still speaking of Jesus, which he will display at the proper time, still speaking of Jesus, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, still clearly Christ, who dwells in unapproachable light, uh uh-oh, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God is spirit. He is the invisible God, not bound by any of his creation. And yet, How has he made himself visible? He's made himself visible. He's made himself manifest. Colossians 1.15, Jesus Christ is the image of the what? Invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. God is the invisible God and Jesus Christ, fully God, has manifested invisible God in a form we can see. You see how vitally important the Lord Jesus Christ is? You and I had no hope of approaching invisible God. How would you even find him? How, how would you go about finding God? We, we were groping in the darkness like blind men and women, deaf to spiritual things, blind to spiritual things, our hearts hardened to God. And yet in Christ, God provided a man who was probably five foot six, who came to earth, just like us. And this man, fully God, could take you by one hand, take his father, invisible God, by the other, and bring us together. That's the glory of Christ who bridges himself as a bridge between us and God. One more descriptor of the king. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, he is the only God. He is the only God. This is the central affirmation of Judaism in the Old Testament. The great Shema, the hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
This is the central focus of all the theology of the Old Testament. This is what God says about himself in the Old Testament, that he is the only God. If you ask anybody who knows what they're talking about in the Old Testament, what's the main fact about God in the Old Testament? It is simply he's the only one. 243 times, 243 in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the true and living God, asserts his dominance over the false, non-existent gods of men. What's the first commandment? You shall have no, what? Other gods before me. And the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the only God, fully God, with God the Father and God the Spirit. And look at the divine authority in this text here alone, which only God, Jesus Christ, has. Verse 12, the authority to grant justification. He judged me faithful. Verse 14, the authority to grant faith and love. Verse 15, the authority to come down from heaven and to save sinners. Verse 16, the authority to either give or withhold patience with men. And this king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, Paul ascribes to him. He wishes upon him honor and glory forever and ever. Now, I want to take a moment on this because this is very important. Honor specifically speaks of the public acknowledgement of the worth of Christ. By its very definition, honor is not private. Honor is not something simply merely given in the heart. Honor is public. And what is glory? Glory says that Christ alone is worthy of this public acknowledgement. Christ alone is worthy of honor. And isn't that our wish? Isn't that our prayer? That Christ would be exalted above all? Psalm 57, 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Verse 11, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Psalm 97, verse 9, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Psalm 108, verse 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Psalm 148, 13, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. The honor and the glory of God is not private. How are we to worship God in public? Because to do less is to not give him honor. There will be a day when the wicked kings of this earth rue the day they ever cross swords with Jesus Christ. Revelation 6, beginning in verse 15, says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful goes on to say they'll hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The public acknowledgement, the honor and glory of Christ will go on forever and ever, long, long, long after those who ever stood against Christ are nothing but dust and ashes and their souls are burning eternally in hell. And now, Paul ends his doxology, his exaltation of Christ with his classic, Amen. This is just simply a transliteration of the Hebrew word, Amen. Some say, Amen. Some say, Amen. I did a little poll of myself. I actually mix up both, and so it doesn't matter. Amen isn't just a Christian version of the end. It is not Hebrew for time to eat. It's just the end. It goes way bigger than that. Remember that Paul's Bible background is the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, 
Amen appears at the end of commands, at the end of blessings, at the end of curses, at the end of prayers, and like here at the end of doxologies. It's used to confirm what has just been said. It's, a, it's used a response, as a response to what's just been said. For example, 1 Chronicles 16.36, King David publicly sings this song of thanksgiving and he ends, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. If you think preachers made up the idea and all God's people said, no, that's from 1 Chronicles 16. Now, Amen or Amen is actually a difficult word to translate because it encompasses such a broad idea. In one particular form of Hebrew, it means to support and be faithful. Another form of the verb means to be sure, to be established. A third form of the verb means to stand firm and to believe. But if we put it all together, basically it means truly, surely, so be it. And yet none of those by themselves completely encompasses the idea of Amen. So Paul's use here of amen fits perfectly within the usual Old Testament usage of confirming something that has just been said. Peter uses it this way in 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 5. Jude uses it this way in in Jude verse 25. All through the Bible, pretty much everyone uses amen the same way to confirm something that was just said, that was just said was true. There's only one guy in the Bible that messes up that pattern. Only one person who completely turns that around and uses amen extensively 73 times, listen, not as the ending, but as the introduction. About what is about to be said is completely true. That what I'm about to say is so rock solid, so divine, so perfect that I'm going to tell you up front that it's true. In fact, a couple of times this person says it twice. Amen, amen. And then he says something that's so true What he's saying is, I'm about to say is so ironclad, so perfect, that I'm going to tell you twice that it's true before I say it. And that person is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said 25 times in John's gospel alone, Amen, Amen, translated, truly, truly, I say to you. And now, here in this doxology focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just that Paul is using this usual ending to affirm that something is true. It's not just that. In this particular case, listen carefully, because of the close connection to Jesus Christ himself, it's not just that what he has said is true, it's that Christ himself is true. Christ himself is, in fact, the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only God who alone deserves honor and glory. In fact, Christ Jesus is so worthy of amen that this is what Jesus Christ calls himself. Revelation 3.14, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Jesus isn't just worthy of Amen, true and faithful. He is the Amen, true and faithful. Our faith is not in the facts about Jesus. Our faith is in the Amen, the person of Jesus himself. Very simple prayer of gospel thankfulness. Thank God for usefulness. Thank God for conversion. Thank God for patience. Thank God with exaltation. We're to thank God with deep, intense, and growing gratitude for his saving grace. Now today, it may be for some of you, and it may be for all of us, I don't know, 
your last Lord's day on this earth. This is not theoretical. Every one of you will have a last Lord's day on this earth. And so my question is, what will you do with Jesus? If you don't know Christ, will you bend your knee? Will you acknowledge that He is the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, that He came into the world to save sinners, that He came into the world to save you? What will you do with Jesus? If you do know the Lord Jesus Christ, have you exalted Him as the one and only God? Have you given Him the thanks that He truly deserves for your salvation? Listen, the example of Paul here to give thanks for salvation isn't a suggestion. It bears the weight of a command as we're commanded elsewhere in the New Testament to give thanks and what great salvation truths are contained just in this short passage. We saw regeneration, verse 12, justification, verse 12, total depravity in verse 13. You're a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. We saw mercy, verse 14, grace, verse 14, love, verse 14, the incarnation and humanity of Christ, verse 15, the doctrine of election, the end of verse 16, the deity of Christ, that he has the authority to grant faith and love, the authority to come down from heaven to save sinners. He is the only God, and we see the eternal, immortal nature of Christ. Ten massive doctrinal truths of our salvation. And what are they meant to do? You are to give thanks You are to give thanks, and you are to give thanks. You're to give thanks because to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Look at your Bible. Read it with me. Read it out loud. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Read it again. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Would you say it that way if Christ was standing up here? To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Lord and Savior, Psalm 16, verse 10 says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Revelation 4 says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And Father, First Chronicles twenty nine eleven says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. We bow before the greatness of Christ. We give you thanks for our salvation. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.